Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, or retaining top talent. In this episode, we're going to discuss the resume black hole, the place where job applicants' resumes vanish to without hiring managers ever seeing them. What is this mysterious place? Why does it exist? And most importantly, is it really doing anyone any good? Uh, today, we have two experts with us to speak about this. Uh, the first is Liz Wessel. She is the co-founder and CEO of WayUp, a venture-backed startup based in New York City that transforms how employers recruit students and recent grads, helping them hire diverse and qualified early career talent. Liz has been featured in Forbes 30 Under 30, the 18 Coolest Women in Silicon Valley by Business Insider, and New York Business Journal's Most Influential Woman. Liz has also been a speaker at TEDx, TechCrunch Disrupt, South by Southwest, and more. Prior to Way Up, Liz worked in marketing at Google, in Mountain View, and India. We also have with us today Steve Fluke, CEO of iHire, a technologist focused on software systems and information architecture. Steve has been at the forefront of the HR and recruitment technology space for nearly a decade. Since 2011, Steve has served as a change agent with many operational roles at iHire, including president, VP of product development, and director of engineering. As president, Steve helped iHire reach record revenue in 2018, a feat achieved by continuously improving iHire's products and services while appealing to both the employer and job seeker market segments. And as his title suggests, he was recently uh, elevated to CEO of iHire. Liz and Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We're excited to have you. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Uh, to get started, I think we'll just have to explain what what the resume black hole is. Liz, do you mind taking a whack at that? Sure. So the resume black hole, also known by the recruiting world as the ATS or applicant tracking system black hole, is essentially, uh, it, it is what it sounds like. It's where candidates who are interested in a job apply online, likely without an internal connection or someone to refer them, and then they never hear back. And Maybe they hear back or, or maybe they hear back from some kind of automated system seven months later, letting them know that the job requisition has been closed. But most likely, not only do they never hear back, but on the other side of things, the recruiters never even saw their resume. So that's how I would describe the black hole. Steve, do you have anything to add to that? I think it was well said. Essentially, it's a, it's a lack of closure, really, from the candidate's perspective. They've, they've bought in, so to speak to the company that they're looking to join and submit their application, their resume, and never hear back. I mean, I, I've definitely been victim of this, um, you know, and we publish all kinds of articles talking about how important it is to keep your your candidates' uh, consideration in mind. You know, they might apply for another position in the future. They might have friends that were going to apply and you've in all likelihood alienated them. So you can definitely see why this is an issue from your everyday candidate side um, from their perspective. But, you know, it's also a pretty big issue from employer's perspective, not just because they're gonna miss out on certain talent, but, or, or they're gonna have a problem engaging talent and candidates, but they might be 
alienating people they never even they never even knew they were alienating. Isn't that right? That's exactly right. The candidate experience is a huge part of an employer's brand, and uh, especially for companies that might have a consumer brand, m- many companies find that employer brand does actually end up reflecting somewhat uh, on their on their actual revenue as a business, especially if you're a consumer brand. So there's a large trickle effect that occurs because of this applicant tracking system black hole and just in general, this concept of providing a poor candidate experience. You hear in the news a lot, uh, I guess I'll direct this one at you, Steve, um, about these keywords that certain applicant tracking systems uh, that they hone in on. So you could say have a list of exclusionary keywords. If you see this, this, or this, the resume doesn't get through. Or conversely, other keywords, you see these words, then send the resume through so that a real human can take a look at it. Um, how did we get how do we get here? I think part of the reason that we're here is recruiters are generally overwhelmed. They're managing multiple recs at a time. They're typically understaffed. And the online platforms that, that support their recruiting goals are making it easier and easier to have a candidate apply. So when I think about the black hole, there's that initial resume black hole, which is the, the focus of your, of your initial question. But unfortunately, there's a black hole as well as you get further down the recruiting process. You, you may you may go through a phone screen or an interview and still never hear back from an employer. So the applicant tracking system is kind of that initial filter, if you will, trying to help the recruiter save time. And uh, most recruiters are used to getting dozens, if not hundreds of applicants. So we try to apply technology to the problem to help. But it is accurate to some degree and unfortunately Despite all the efforts with machine learning and AI, there's there's still a lot of examples where the rule set or the technology just comes short. Yeah, I've I've spoken to plenty of our recruiter clients. So at WayUp, what we essentially do is we get rid of the black hole by ensuring that, and we only do this for early career, but every single candidate who applies for any of our clients' early career jobs will hear back within 24 hours, no matter what. There's not one candidate who won't hear back within 24 hours, and when we speak to companies where the VP is really excited about this because it's a great candidate experience, sometimes someone more junior might chime in and say, well, I don't think we should reject anyone. And we hear this more often than I ever would have expected. Um, and it's always surprising. And when I dig in on why they say, well, I don't want to reject them because what if six months from now or a year from now we have another position? And it's this concept. I loved how Steve said closure. It's this concept of it's okay to let someone know that they're not the right fit for that job, but that maybe you'll keep your their resume in your resume book or in your talent pool, whatever you want to call it, to reach out at a later time. But this concept of people saying, oh, I don't want to reject them because of some rule, some arbitrary rule due to the fact that they think that's a better candidate experience is absolutely not the way that job seekers want to be interacted with. Yeah, it seems like the difference between a, a gentle letdown and basically just being strung along forever, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. At iHire, we try to educate our employers. We actually don't even use the word rejection. It's so harsh. Um, and to Liz's point, if you can adopt a strategy to pipeline talent that may not be the best fit for the requisition that you have at the moment, but could be utilized potentially in the future, it opens up a whole uh, new door of, of, of opportunities, really. Um, we soften it 
by calling disqualification. Mm. Um, I w- I'm going to want to get back into the candidate experience because obviously it's critical. Um, but, you know, I think there's another issue here where if your LMS isn't set up correctly, you might be excluding people who would make perfectly good candidates. Um, I'm sure both of you have experience with that situation. Liz, do you have any examples? Yeah, I think um, the example I, I love to give because it's so it's something that anyone I believe can relate to uh, is GPA. So a lot of companies will just have this decision by someone uh, that they're going to have a GPA requirement. And, and often the reason is actually very much coming from a good place, such as, well, I want to be able to have an easy way to get through everyone in my talent pool. And so they'll create a GPA requirement. And what people don't realize is that candidates have very different GPAs based on a bunch of different factors. But one of the factors that is pretty um, true and consistent across schools and across throughout the entire country is actually that candidates who are Black and Hispanic tend to have a substantially lower GPA than candidates who are white and Asian. And every Georgetown study, and there's been several studies on this, and every study shows it has nothing to do with IQ. It very often has to just do with how much time they have uh, that they can allocate to being in the library and studying versus how much time they have where they're doing multiple part-time jobs. So Black and Hispanic candidates in this case are much more likely to need to work part-time to support themselves financially. And so the way that this kind of really ends up backfiring against companies is that most companies would rather have a three point, let's call it a 3.1 GPA, but a student who has three part-time jobs, hustles their way through school, is really like working hard versus someone who has a 3.5 GPA, has never had a a job before, but is in the library all the time. And yet something like GPA ends up filtering out candidates who are specific races much more often than other candidates of other races because the company had the right intentions of just trying to find a fair way to uh, filter out candidates so that they don't have a black hole. So that's one of many, many examples, but that's the exact kind of thing we'll do with companies where we'll say when we're setting up their qualifiers in their CRM or in our CRM, hey, what are the things you actually need and what are the nice to haves and and what are your intentions behind every single qualification that in the past you thought were must-haves? Does that make sense? It absolutely does. Um, It's actually an issue that we've tackled a few times and that, that I've been following closely, which is that when you have um, electronic systems making decisions, they're introducing biases that may be unintentional. Exactly. And I'm not familiar with any any current legal cases where someone's been able to prove that they've been discriminated against because of a, a computer system. But the second that employment lawyers figure out how to prosecute those cases, I mean, there's going to be a watershed moment because it's happening on a widespread scale. Well, I can tell you um, there's a very popular uh, engineering, software engineering assessment that a lot of companies use. And without naming the name, um, we now have enough companies who work with WayUp and who use that tool where we're able to look at their data across many, many thousands of candidates and see are candidates who are female more likely to fail or pass than candidates who are male, same with Black, Hispanic, et cetera. And the results are staggering. I mean, this assessment fails Black candidates almost 80% more of the time than candidates who are white. And these are candidates from the exact same 
uh, background, like, you know, very, sorry, not backgrounds. These are candidates who have the exact same set of qualifications from a standpoint of their level of learning with computer science, um, what, you know, their GPAs are and so on and so forth. But very often it's just a matter of, well, this school went, this student went to a school that taught you how to take the test basically. And so it's pretty insane. Um, another one is that there's a gaming assessment where flat out women just don't take it at a high, as high a rate as men, because I think uh, a lot of women traditionally, this is somewhat of a stereotype, but we see this in our data, traditionally um, are less into gaming online than men. And as a result, um, they self-report that that's one of the reasons they don't want to take that assessment. So I couldn't agree more that the level of bias happening in assessments is extremely high. And unfortunately, um, some companies just don't have the data to, uh, to recognize that. And that's a big part of what we do with companies. And I think what Liz is speaking to is, is the overall challenge of applying technology to a problem that's, that, um, it's really between, you know, two humans The it's a, there's a myriad of, of possibilities when you're trying to evaluate talent objectively, uh, without, without bias, there, there are some high profile cases and, information out on the web. I, if I recall correctly, I think Amazon about a year ago, they released a study, you know, with all of their resource, all of their data, um, machine learning and AI can kind of go wrong. And they were introducing some unintended biases in, into their process by trying to use technology you know, to a, to its greatest extent. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work out for the best. There was a, you know, Google did a, did a study, um, I think it was about 10 years ago where they tried to distill mathematically what makes a high performer um, has some Greek name. Uh, anyway, the point was that they thought that they have all this data, all these people, all these analytic tools, surely they can figure out what's that thing that makes a high performer. And what they found was that it wasn't GPA or socioeconomic status or your race or um, even your intelligence, uh, it was your ability to feel safe on a team and to feel safe to fail, which just goes to show how misguided the concept is of saying, you know, we only want people with this amount of GPA or, and this one's something I've struggled with myself, but I mean, even just some you people get rejected because their resume doesn't look right, which first of all, is fairly subjective, and second of all, is highly irrelevant to someone's skill set, you know, and it's like there's this sort of common belief like, well, if you can't put together a resume, then I don't want you working here, and meanwhile, the person that put together that poor resume might have been your top performer, and you'll never know because you rejected them, you know? Yeah, I often um, tell companies, I, I understand actually saying a spelling error or a you know clear grammatical error, if, if the person has to do a heavy amount of communication in their job, that's a completely understandable thing to look out for. But, you know, having the resume not be formatted perfectly, unless they're applying for a designer job, I just don't see why that's relevant to someone being strong or not strong at a sales position, an engineering position, and so on. So I, I totally agree. And again, it's one of these... I love the concept that I think Greenhouse um, made really popular of structured recruitment. I know structured interviewing has been going on for, for a long time, but I think Greenhouse did a great job at really 
evangelizing it over the last decade or so. And it's this concept of you have exactly what your must-haves are at each round, and that's what you assess people for. And your must-haves should be things that result in the, you know, what you believe makes someone successful in the role. And so formatting of a resume just ends up being uh, something that isn't important for a lot of roles and yet for some reason plays this this part uh, in many people's evaluation of candidates. And so I couldn't agree more. I think it's a great example. Steve, do you have anything to add? Only that, that an individual's ability to personally market themselves is definitely not a great indicator of their skill to fulfill the job that that you you need uh, the person that you need to join join your company. I I've can recount many scenarios and even employees inside of ViHire themselves, and we're in this space. But to write about yourself, to to have a, a really nice LinkedIn profile or resume, that's not necessarily a, a native skill to everyone, nor do they even like the activity. So just just the ability to personally market yourself, I don't think it's a great great indication of what you're really going to get out of this this new hire. So I think the major problem has got to be the quantity of applications coming in, right? Who, who I've done hiring before, you know, and they're just for these uh, freelance writing gigs, and we'll maybe get like a hundred resumes. And reading a hundred resumes, I'm not a hiring manager, you know. I have all my regular stuff I have to do. So reading a hundred resumes is not a small task, you know. And these are for me isolated scenarios where you know we need we need someone you know, for this new publication, we're not going to hire another person in that role for another two or three years. But it's been very illustrative to me of if I had to do this all the time, you know, uh, it's so easy to understand why someone would, would look for a shortcut or you scan briefly and, and just you're rejecting things and you don't even really know why because it's just overwhelming. And so as usual, humans have created shortcuts and as usual shortcuts are inadequate what do you go let's start with you liz what what is the solution i mean how do we how do we address this issue should it just be like talking to every single person should we be expanding recruiting teams yeah it's a great question um so I, I obviously am a little bit biased here, but uh, what you're saying is a real problem, especially for early career where the requirements for a role might be a little less stringent than the requirements for a more senior position. And so just to give you an example that's extreme but very real, um, Under Armour is famously one of the most exclusive hiring companies in the world. They get 15,000 uh, internship applications every year for about 75 to 100 positions. And their team is not big. They have about two people and they're recruiting a team for early career. So imagine two people going through 15,000. And it's another example of a great consumer brand, great in my opinion, um, that, you know, they care about their employer brand for a lot of reasons, one of which is their employers are very often uh, their consumers and vice versa. Uh, their employees, I'm sorry, are very often their, their um, consumers and, and vice versa. So going back to this question of how companies like Under Armour do this. Um, in the past, there were assessments and a lot of companies saw you get major drop off and or there's a lot of bias. Um, then there were companies like HireVue that had a video recorded interview. And unfortunately, again, you get a decent amount of drop off. You definitely have um, 
uh, an issue where having a hiring manager, a recruiter sitting down watching 15,000 videos is just not exciting. And then you have a terrible candidate experience. Whenever I speak to students and recent grads, I always ask who here wishes that they could upload a video recording of themselves for someone to watch in the world at some point. And it's like, of course not. No one does. And so, again, it goes to how do you create this good candidate experience where you're getting back to everyone? And, and that's why we created our flagship product, which is called Source Screen and Coach, where we essentially will tell a company, let us do sourcing for you. And we're going to source specifically candidates who appear to be qualified on paper and who, very importantly, are extremely diverse. Um, you, of course, can source all the candidates you want as well, but let us be your digital sourcing platform. And then we... Um, and we source candidates for a company and then we'll actually digitally screen every single candidate using the exact same um, unbiased criteria. And it's not an assessment where there's AI that could have some kind of um, bias potentially, because I'm still, I've still yet to see too many examples of AI being used in the interview process where it has shown lack of bias. And that's purely based on data of, you know, we have five and a half million candidates on web. So we, we have a pretty large sample size. Um, so what I would tell you is our, our digital screens are based on very much fact-based criteria that, again, the company will give us as here are must-haves. So whether it's visa requirements, um, location status, uh, some kind of experience that they need the candidate to have, maybe it's compensation minimum requirements, and so on and so forth. Our, our clients will give us a set of criteria. We usually advise them on um, more or less to give and so on. And then after that, the candidate hears back from our system within 24 hours based on their answers to the questions in the application on whether or not they're qualified. And if they are qualified, they move on to a phone screen. And in, in most companies' cases that we work with, the companies are comfortable with I don't want to say outsourcing the phone screen, but it's co-sourcing the phone screen where they say WayUp is going to conduct the first round phone screen. And we have an entire team of people who will actually do all of the phone screens for the company. And if the candidate is qualified, we move them along to whatever that next or final round is with the company's hiring manager. And so it makes it so that these companies don't have to scale up and down their internal teams. Um, it's a pretty you know, low cost. Generally, it's definitely a better ROI than hiring internally. And it, it just makes it so much easier that you have an entire team of people and technology that are sourcing and screening and screening again for you, creating a great candidate experience. And of course, making sure you're only getting qualified candidates through your funnel. So that's our solution. And that's what our entire business does. Steve, how do you approach approach this problem? Well, I, I think you hit, hit the nail on the head that it's largely a volume issue. Liz's solution um, it sounds like a good one. I mean, if every employer could get a slate of a dozen or two uh, can list of candidates, then a lot of this issue goes away. But you have to have people that are, are really experienced in evaluating those initial applicants. Mostly what I hear provides is recruitment advertising services, more of a top of funnel. And so my perspectives um, on this are a little different in the sense that Unfortunately, the average employer cannot measure quality of applicant. That's we preach, we preach quality, but most employers have a hard time evaluating their sources of recruitment advertising and understanding where they're getting the best quality from. And you know, I ask this to to our employers, to our customers all the time. If if you could have a hundred applicants and eight that you thought were quality, would would you take that or would you take 20 applicants with, with eight 
that are that are good quality that you want to phone screen. And every time it's the shorter list, right? Because why would you want to have to sift through all of those irrelevant applications? But at the end of the day, if they cannot measure quality, all they can see is quantity. And the, and the larger sources of candidates coming from large brands, um, we, we know for a fact that there's still bulk apply experiences out there where a candidate can supply profile information on a resume and then automatically apply to 50 jobs at a time. There's now one click apply, which is increasing in popularity and very much akin to Amazon one click purchases where a lot of these candidates are applying to jobs. They don't even read the job description. They just see a suggestion from the online platform that here's another job that's similar to the one you just applied to click here to apply. Um, I'm not sure that I see that going away until candidates or excuse me, until employers can really measure quality much better than they, than they can today. And it's, it's kind of uh, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, really, because you, you're just going to keep getting more and more candidates. You think that that's providing value as a service, but really you're you're creating a huge problem for yourself with with the labor it takes to to evaluate those. And before you know it, you have this black hole scenario where you're going to try to apply some technology that is imperfect in reality, and and the candidates are ultimately getting a, a poor a poor experience with that employer brand. Do you guys think that as the desperation of people that are applying for jobs goes up, these kinds of problems increase? I remember, you know, when I was seeking a job, you apply to 20 jobs, you hear nothing. You apply to 20 more jobs, you hear nothing, you adjust your resume, you adjust your, you know, your um, letter, you, and then by the end, I'm just so sick and tired of not hearing back. You know, I'm writing like flippant letters to people or I'm trying different approaches or you're just like, well, I'll just apply to, I'll just apply to anything because, because no one's getting back to me, you know, and that's just one person. So if you multiply that across all people looking for jobs, you know, like how much of this is, how much of this problem, I guess what I'm asking is self-created by the way that employers have tried to find have tried to find workers it's interesting because i've heard you know employers have wanted to know why is it that these candidates aren't responding to my outreach to them like they applied for my job and i reached out to them to schedule an interview why aren't they doing it and so we've run surveys before with candidates who quote unquote ghosted the employer and asked them and they said well i'm used to getting ghosted by employers myself and so I think you're nailing it on the head a little bit with this whole concept of if employers are ghosting candidates in a lot of ways, then candidates might find it to be okay to ghost employers, which obviously it's not. Neither of them are okay. <laughs> but I think you are nailing it on the head. Plus, of course, there's this ridiculous and awesome rate of unemployment that our country has right now, which again, I'm very much happy about, but it does result in candidates having a lot of uh, roles to choose from. And so... It, it does make it that they get to be a little more picky and sometimes pickiness doesn't necessarily result in the best behavior. Too true. Um, when it's a buyer's market, the buyers can, can afford to be a little bit aggressive, I suppose you could say. Yeah. And we've um, just sort of anecdotally, we've had two candidates recently that did something like that. The one who took the job and then had another offer come in like a week later and then left for that job. Mm. Um, 
And then we had another person who did, didn't show up on their first day because they, they went after something else, which is not something that we're used to, you know? Yeah. And I don't, I don't think, you know, obviously things are changing. I don't know how long we can sustain this low rate of unemployment, but so too do the, the approaches to getting employees has to change also. Um, you know, and it's interesting, this like this war that goes on because it's it's a personal thing. People's identities are connected to their jobs. You know, when you get rejected from a company that you, you know, that you uh, really like or a brand that you really like, it's hard not to take it personally. I mean, after all, they judged you on your merits and then said no. Right. Um, and people's the tensions get high. You know, I was recently talking to a recruiter at a chemical company who candidates that got re- rejected, you know, got the, the, she went out of her way to send people notices that they weren't hired, which as we know, not everybody does. And people are writing her back, like cursing at her. Yeah. yeah. You know, which is insane to think of, but you know, there's like a, it's almost like a war and you have two sides battling each other. And I wonder if either of you have suggestions for uh, how we sort of calm this whole thing down. Yeah. Um, I can tell you what at Way Up we do because we've A-B tested a lot of different strategies. And um, the one that seems to work the best, at least for us, and this is more focused on early career. So I'll take that, um, you know, take that for what it's worth. But um, what we do is every single candidate who gets phone screened, who gets to that stage, gets feedback. Um, They actually get coaching. Um, first of all, the person who's screening them asks them on the call, do you want coaching? Because not everyone does, but let's call it about 99.5% of people do. Um, and so for the majority of people who do want coaching, we actually send them whether they pass or fail, just some tips for here are ways that, you know, here are suggestions of things that maybe you could have done better on a phone screen, regardless of who the company is. And here are things you did fantastic that you should keep doing. And candidates love that feedback to a point where our clients will get emails from candidates saying, you rejected me uh, a few weeks ago, but I want you to know that I took your advice and that advice actually has resulted in me getting another job and I'm so forever grateful. So that's number one. Um, It's this concept of if you're able to give feedback in a way that does not put you up for legal battles, which is, of course, something that we are extremely conscious of. So all the feedback we give is in a structured format, and it's been approved by our lawyers, and it is not anything that um, is necessarily related to why the person passed or failed. It's just soft skills feedback. And then the second one is when you do reject, I always recommend to companies that they have some kind of a action item that the candidate can take, such as um, you know, follow us here to learn about future jobs, because while this one wasn't right for you, it doesn't mean that any of ours won't be right for you or follow us on Instagram. You know, we post jobs there, whatever it might be. And so some kind of action that can allow the candidate to at least feel like it's it's not closed forever. It's just no for now or for this job. That usually helps a lot as well. Those are great suggestions. Steve, do you have anything to add? Yeah, our approach is somewhat similar. We, we try to educate our employers and our clients really towards a, a win-win scenario in recruiting where you can adopt talent pipelining at a at a level that that most in our experience, especially in the SMB market, most most are not even thinking about. They're they're looking at that candidate for that specific requisition and they're laser focused on whether that candidate is the best for that role right now. And all the underqualified and all the overqualified 
all of your silver medalists and shortlisted candidates, they basically get dumped in the trash can, unfortunately. And, you know, a, a, a new mindset for those that, that haven't adopted talent pipeline is to really just think critically about the potential of that candidate in the future, either for that same role or for another role within the organization. And the win-win there is you're going to have a better can experience because some number of your rejection notices or disqualification notices you get to kind of give them the the reality that they're not going to be the chosen one for this particular opening. However, we see a lot of things that we like um, in, in your resume and we'd like to hang on to you for the future because we're always hiring. So that's kind of a win-win. Um, that's, that's something that we educate to our employers and the net result is you have some talent pipeline um, so you can kind of pre-demand uh, higher when the need arises and at the same time you're, you're giving the candidate a better experience and improving your overall employer brand. Yeah, I just um, really just have one last question. Um, I, I've asked for feedback from organizations. So Liz, when you mentioned the feedback thing, um, people are so reticent to tell you, and, and I've been there myself. I've had people ask me, why didn't, why didn't I get the job? It's very hard to tell somebody that they're not qualified or that their writing wasn't that good. Um, and, you know, I, I imagine it's just one of those things that it's a skill that you need to be trained on. Do either of you have suggestions for helping hiring managers communicate those things to, to applicants? If I'm being totally frank, um, our, the law firm we work with, will constantly is recommending to us do not give feedback based on why someone passed or failed you can give them feedback on things that they can improve in general or feedback on things that they did really well but try to avoid at scale giving feedback on why someone passed or failed this is the feedback we've always or this is advice we've always gotten because candidates can um can you know be really emotional and might twist your words or might misunderstand you and um, you don't want to get sued for trying to help someone improve and so for us at least at way up and for our clients we do not give feedback on why someone passed or failed unless it is something unless the client wants us to and it's as explicit of a thing that has absolutely no opinion to it such as we do not offer visa sponsorship and you require visa sponsorship or you must be a junior for this job and you know for this internship and you're a freshman. So those kinds of things, many of our clients do allow, many actually don't as well, but I will say we just pretty much always recommend um, with our clients to avoid giving too specific feedback, unfortunately, because all you need is one candidate to um, take it out of context or something like that. And, and we hear it happen all the time with Fortune 500s. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> our guidance to our clients is exactly the same, actually. Unfortunately, it can be dangerous, really, uh, if, you're, if you don't know what you're doing if you don't have a lot of experience and most of our customers are really juggling multiple hats they might be an hr generalist or maybe they're even a front desk reception handling handling the hiring for their for their small business and so it's just easier to be somewhat generic unfortunately in the response to not open yourself up to to litigation well that is unfortunate although it explains a lot um you know, because what a great opportunity 
you know, to learn about why, you know, what you could do to get that next job. Yeah. You know, um, I think part of this goes back to the volume issue, too, though, because, you know, it takes time to provide that personalized feedback. And it, job search is a very emotional process that candidates are going through, and you can feel really lonely in it, quite frankly. So it's, when, in my experience, when, when you provide more personalized feedback, it's often inviting a response, you know, probing for more information, even if it's just, just to help. Um, and that takes time. And unfortunately, our customers are usually out of time and behind schedule. We, um, I will say again, we're really proud of the fact that we're able to give soft skills feedback to 100% of candidates who have a phone screen and they get it within 24 hours of their phone screen. So it's great. But like, I, I just, I think that, I think that one, if I'm going to flip this to be a positive and not just be a, oh, shucks, that sucks kind of a situation, there are companies where, you know, maybe you, maybe one of you guys, let's just say, maybe Steve doesn't want to hire someone because uh, someone on Steve's team doesn't think they're a good enough writer, but maybe they're the perfect writer for another company. So sometimes it's actually a good thing that, you know, they, um, that a candidate might not get that feedback because they might change everything they do uh, just to please one employer when it turns out that that one employer just has one opinion. And so it's not always a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, well, great. I think that's uh, all the time that we have here. But uh, thank you both, Liz and Steve, uh, for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having me. Listeners, we always, we're always interested in suggestions you might have for what HR work should cover next. So feel free to reach out to me at jdavis at plr.com. With any thoughts or concerns you have about the podcast in general, or if you just want to say hi, thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.